This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Episode 13, Bill Gates, the Coronavirus Warrior. Today's podcast is devoted to Bill Gates. Bill Gates, of course, is a household name. We know him as the visionary founder of Microsoft. Microsoft, one of the great tech company successes of the 20th century, the 21st century. The company which brought us Windows, the company that brought us the graphic interface. The very software that you're using right now to listen to my podcast may very well be based on Windows or some other iteration of a Microsoft product which he and his team created and commercialized and brought to us throughout the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, and beyond. He is a visionary, and he is someone who is still having a great effect, but in a completely different field. And that field is the coronavirus. More broadly, for the last 15 years, He has talked about infectious diseases and specifically about the threat of pandemics. For many people, when he spoke of pandemics, it seemed like a faraway threat. It seemed like he was a Cassandra out in the wilderness crying disaster, but he has been very prescient. His fears of a pandemic are now keeping us isolated in our homes, walking six feet away from each other, preventing us from going to work. And most importantly, Bill Gates had the vision to talk about the pandemic and to talk about the pandemic as an existential threat to mankind. And as a result of what has happened with COVID-19, the pandemic has now moved into that shameful pantheon of climate change and nuclear holocaust. The pandemic now sits squarely with those two nightmarish scenarios which threaten the very existence of mankind. So we will focus on Bill Gates. I will tell you some background about Bill that you didn't know and perhaps uh, some, some data points that, uh, that you do know, but, but that are uh, a little, in a little bit more depth. Let's start first with a little bit of biography. He was born in 1955 in Seattle, Washington. His father was an attorney His mother was a civic leader. He had two younger siblings. His mother, in addition to being a civic leader and played a very important role, of course, in his life, his mother was also a director of IBM. But we'll come back to that board membership a little later on. He had a middle-class life growing up in Seattle. He attended uh, the Lakeside Preparatory School He did quite well there, strong academics. Um, He excelled at board games. 
as a kid. Uh, Risk was one of his favorite games, as well as Monopoly, to no one's surprise, of course. He went on, finished his uh, full 12 years there at the Lakeside Prep School. He took his SATs, and he scored 1,590 out of 1,600 for his SATs and was accepted at Harvard. He was very proud of that score, 1,590, and told everyone and anyone that he met about that score. So um, I guess you'd have to say he was a bit of a braggart, but uh, he got into Harvard. His parents were delighted, and they hoped that he would follow in his father's footsteps, going to Harvard and eventually becoming an attorney. Once he got to Harvard, however, he spent more time in the computer lab than he actually spent focused on his studies. He spent two years at Harvard from 1973 to 75. And while he was at Harvard, he rekindled a friendship with one of his lakeside friends, Paul Allen, who was two years older than he. Paul Allen had also dropped out of college. He went to Washington State University and then moved to Boston to work for Honeywell. And while he was working for Honeywell, he, of course, became enamored of computers. And one day he actually showed uh, Bill an article in Popular Electronics magazine, which featured a mini computer, a PC, a home computer. Bill and Paul were both fascinated by this. Bill also had a very keen business sense, very competitive, and rather hard-nosed. The two friends, fast friends, decided that they would leave Boston, that he would, that Bill would quit Harvard to, to the dismay of his parents, and they moved out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, went to work for a little uh, PC computer company out there called Altair, and while they were working for Altair, Bill was able to buy an operating system which worked on the Altair 8800 as well as small computers like IBM's PC. And he made a deal with the software developer so that, um, that Microsoft would have the exclusive licensing agreement. So... From there, they moved on to talk to IBM, and I dare say his connection through his mother was helpful. They moved on to talk to IBM about supplying IBM with software for their PCs. By 1981, Microsoft had been incorporated. The asset of Microsoft was this operating system, and, of course, the operating system was still the rather clunky keyboard-based system that we, uh, those of us who have been around computers a long time or would, would quite remember. It certainly was not the Apple type of uh, graphic interface system. So they were able to persuade IBM to sign up for a licensing agreement. IBM wanted to buy the operating system. Bill refused to sell it. So for every IBM PC that was sold with the MS-DOS operating system, 
Microsoft actually got a percentage of that sale. By 1983, 30% of the world's computers ran on MS, MS, that is Microsoft software. In 1981, uh, Bill was introduced to Steve Jobs. At that point, Bill discovered the beauty of the graphic interface, the mouse, so on and so forth. And Microsoft at that point then discovered Windows. Not, excuse, they developed rather than discovered. They, disco they developed Windows, which is a system that used a mouse and graphic interface to great acclaim. In 1985, Windows was launched and it effectively made the IBM PC um, a much more user-friendly computer along the lines of Apple and IBM sales took off like a rocket ship in addition to which other uh, computers, home computers, personal computers that were based on the IBM model also took off like a rocket ship using the Windows software. So Microsoft essentially learned from Steve Jobs' Apple intuitive approach to software, and the company did very well. In 1986, Microsoft went IPO. Bill owned 45% of Microsoft's stock. And by 1999, his stock had split eight times and his net worth was approximately $100 million. In 1994, Bill met one of his employees, Melinda French. They were married. They created a foundation called the W.H. Gates Foundation to support education, world health, investments in low-income communities globally. Melinda began studying 19th century philanthropy models, looking at Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller. And by 2000, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was created with a $28 billion endowment. Bill continued in the day-to-day -day management of Microsoft till 2008 when he handed over the reins to Steve Ballmer. He stepped away completely from the company in 2014 when Nadella took over as CEO from Steve Ballmer. And since 2014, for the last six years that is, Bill has spent all of his time focused on philanthropy. So we started with a bright, scrappy, somewhat combative nerd who had a vision to bring the personal computer into everyone's home and to transform the world. And that vision became a reality. Fast forward to 2014, he steps away from Microsoft. He focuses 100% of his time on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And he begins to search for a new vision. And the new vision, of course, is around public health child mortality, malnutrition, and HIV cures. At the same time, he and Melinda identified 
infections, and chronic diseases as the two biggest health concerns that needed to be addressed in the coming day in the coming decades, and they together as husband and wife they decided that that would be the primary focus of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They focused on a couple of third world scourges, diseases, such as malaria, polio. Uh, They worked through the foundation with some of the greatest epidemiologists in the world to come up with vaccines against malaria, polio, and other ravaging diseases of the third world. By 2018, Bill was narrowing down his focus and he teamed up with one of the Google founders, Larry Page, and he gave $12 million to fund a universal flu vaccine. So Bill's concern and focus on the flu and trying to find a vaccine for it is not new. He is not a latecomer to this area. Bill has earned the the anger of the anti-vaccine movement. I will simply state that. Um, But that has not stopped him and his wife and his foundation from moving on and looking at and working with scientists to develop new vaccines. Coming on to the end of 2019-2020, after years of warning the world about pandemics, we actually have one. And he saw his ominous words about pandemics and the existential threat that a pandemic could pose to mankind. He saw that unfold with the outbreak of the novel coronavirus in 2019-2020 in Wuhan, China. Um, The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in conjunction with the Wellcome Trust and MasterCard, together the three of them pledged $125 million in February of 2020 to curb the outbreak of the coronavirus. Bill said that he was ready to invest billions of dollars to build flu vaccine factories once a flu vaccine to conquer corona, the coronavirus was discovered. Now, Bill's view is that it will take at least 18 months to develop a coronavirus vaccine. And that's putting it on a fast track. Um, he acknowledges that there may well be trade-offs with that fast track in that perhaps there will be less safety testing of this new vaccine. But the magic and the importance of the 18-month timeline is this. We are at the beginning of the 18-month timeline. We're living the 18-month timeline today with social distancing practices, isolation practices, staying away from work, wearing face masks, wearing gloves, That is step one of the 18-month timeline to get us to the vaccine. Step two are the therapeutics. He has identified between 50 and 100 existing FDA-approved medicines and therapeutics, 
which are used for other illnesses. Chloroquine is one of them. Uh, we've heard a lot about that in the last few weeks. But the next phase in this process will be the identification of existing therapeutics which can be used to soften the blow, if you will, to make the coronavirus, once it takes hold, to make it less lethal than it has been in so many cases. So that will be the therapeutic phase of this 18-month process. And then finally, uh, leading up, and at the same time as we're going through the therapeutic phase of this, the vaccine research will be going on. And in fact, at this point, the, the Gates Foundation, through the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, the acronym is CEPI, C-E-P-I, which is a global public-private partnership, has made investments in eight coronavirus vaccine programs. Among the eight are included several programs such as Moderna, CureVac, Innovio, Novavax, University of Queensland, among others. So Bill and Melinda Gates are actually putting their money right there through this CEPI public-private partnership and putting it into the hands of researchers who are working as we speak, looking to develop that coronavirus vaccine over the next 18 months. Gates warned of this pandemic in 2015. And when he warned of it, he also talked about the need to build up ICU capacity, to make new ventilators, to prioritize diagnostics. He was talking about all of that in 2015. It's 2020. We have just come through the peak of the coronavirus infection here in the United States when we saw the lack of ICU capacity, the fact we didn't have enough ventilators, the fact that diagnostics were off to a slow start. So again, his ability to see the future, whether it's in a positive sense, as it was with the personal computer and Windows, or to see the future, which is somewhat bleak in the case of a pandemic, he is clearly the man is a visionary. As we talk about the the World Health Organization, WHO, as he said yesterday, and I paraphrase here, halting funding to a World Health Organization during a pandemic crisis is as dangerous as it sounds. Slowing down the work of the WHO can only speed up the spread of COVID-19. So he, he has a very strong view of that. Since the COVID-19 disease has emerged in Wuhan, China, the virus has infected 2 million people globally. It's killed at least 125,000 people globally, according to Johns Hopkins University. So at this point, what we are faced with is the following. We have seen a man of great ambition, great drive, a great business sense, move into the world of philanthropy, and he's brought that drive, that ambition, and the vision that transformed our lives through 
the PC and through the internet, he's brought that vision now to conquering COVID-19 and to marshalling the resources of this country and the world, in fact, to defeat this pandemic. In closing, in a February 2020 letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, Bill Gates earned the government of the United, urged the government of the United States to begin a strong policy response at home in the United States and to contribute to preparedness against the pandemic in lower mid-income countries. He pledged $100 million in coronavirus fight, $125 million, in fact, in February, and he called for accelerated work on vaccines and laid out a step-by-step plan to make sure that such a pandemic does not happen again. In this case, billionaire philanthropy really can do the critical work very quickly, very nimbly, much faster than governments can. Specifically in the case of the Seattle flu study, which Bill Gates funded, as a result of that Seattle flu study, which came out at the time that coronavirus was rampant in the state of Washington, Washington was the leader in terms of C-19 cases. And today, as a result of that study and the recommendations made in the study, Washington state has dropped to 14th place in terms of the total numbers of the patients of COVID-19. In closing, our sources today for this podcast have been Bloomberg, Vox, CNBC, Biography.com, Yahoo Finance, and the New England Journal of Medicine. This has been Jim Herlihy. I'm signing off for the San Francisco experience from America's favorite city, San Francisco.